Today on the podcast, we are joined by Nadine Teriora, CEO of AA New Zealand. The AA is one of the most trusted and recognized brands in New Zealand, and with over 1,300 people spread across Aotearoa, the leadership responsibility is a big one. In this candid interview, Nadine shares her top three leadership insights. They are a great combination of hard-earned lessons and observations from a leader who has learned how to be her authentic self. In leadership, failure is inevitable, but it's how you recover from the failure that's important. The question that Nadine asks her own leadership team is, are we leaders worth following? This is a fun and insightful interview. You'll even learn if Nadine knows how to change her own tyre. Nadine, welcome along to the Business Leader Breakthroughs podcast. Thank you so much for making time to join us today. Pleasure. It's great great to be with you. Bab, okay, Nadine, I'm going to hit you hard with some fast fact questions so our audience can get to know you a little bit. Let's go breakfast or dinner? Breakfast. Yeah, what was on the menu this morning? Oh, just, you know, the usual uh, granola, a little bit of coconut yogurt, a bit of fruit. Nice. Yeah, good. Like that. On holiday, are we likely to find you tearing off the bungee jump or poolside with a cocktail? Probably uh, tearing off, um, doing something similar to a bungee jump. Possibly not a bungee, um, but definitely that kind of activity. A, a rapid horse ride along the beach or something yeah, probably, of that nature? Probably. <laughs> nice. Uh, style, are you a trainers or heels kind of girl? Ooh, good question. Probably more a... Um, Heels kind of girl, I think. And when it comes to reading, do you like the convenience of the Kindle, keep it electronic, carry a thousand books around, or are you a real deal? I'm the real deal book person. I love I love the, the fact of going um, old school because I can. Nice. Cats or dogs? Dogs. We can continue. I normally have to cut, cut people off at this point if they say cats. <laughs> and routine-wise, are you an early riser or a night owl? Definitely an early riser, 5.30 a.m. Every day. Like clockwork weekends as well? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Totally, totally attuned. Um, morning's the best time of day. I am uh, definitely aligned on that one. Already, if we were uh, picking a movie to watch, would it be thriller or comedy? Thriller, definitely. Way more fun. Like yeah. it. Hey, nice one, Nadine. Let's talk a little bit about leadership and some of your journey. And we always like to have our uh, guests share some top leadership insights and then explore the conversation from there. So maybe in summary, could you give us your top three and then we'll dig in? Sure. Um, first one would be um, management and leadership are fundamentally different. And um, really what I'm honing in on there is the fact that leadership's not a right, it's a privilege. That probably be number one for me. Number two would be uh, you definitely can't fake it till you make it when you're a um, a successful leader um, because even the greatest leaders in the world fail. They just know how to recover fast. And in the last one is probably the most important to me um, in my journey, and that's really um, this notion of being a leader worth following. Uh, that was introduced to me about 10 years ago, and I think it's um, it's really stuck with me because if you really unpack that, it's quite intriguing when you hold the mirror up to yourself as a leader. Indeed. And then you've had a large number of leadership roles now, so plenty of uh, stories and experience to call on and looking forward to digging into those a little bit. But let's come back to that management versus leadership. It seems to be terms that are, are commonly confused. Uh, people seem to use them interchangeably. Uh, interested in your, your take. Tell us more about how you think about those as uh, separate. Yeah, sure. I think 
The reason I separate the two is I think when you're in management mode, it's it's generally around prescribed process that fundamentally is repetitious or happens regularly. And you're managing either a um, widget from here to there or a, or a, a group of people or a, a person through a standardised process. So that's really a, a management, I guess, is more mechanical from my perspective. In leadership, and as I said, leadership is more around, um, you have a, I think you're given a privilege when you get a leader, you get to um, lead. And leadership is more, you know, operating in the gray. So there's no, there's no playbook. Um, there's no process because every, everything that you come across as a leader um, is generally quite different. And it's and I think I think too lead from a leadership perspective, people look at you in quite a different light to as you know as, as somebody that has a manager title. Um, and and a good example would be uh, a leader is more of a role model, and manager is more of a supervisor. In terms, of I go to that person when I don't know what to do next. It's probably oversimplifying it, but that's how I differentiate the two. Sure. And do you find yourself how much of your role is spent in leadership versus management? Do you do you still oscillate between the two, even as the CEO in the organisation? Yeah, I think you do. It's just the percentage of and you know of what I do. So I would say probably spend ten percent or less in management territory and in ninety to ninety five percent in leadership. And I think that's really important because I think the minute as a CEO, if you're finding that your that equation is round the other way. You've got some fundamental problems, and and the first the first person you need to look at is yourself in terms of so what are you doing to create that management situation as opposed to more of an empowerment model where your role is really about you know um, making sure the roadblocks are removed to to enable people to be at their best and um and again that's why I think leadership is more of a privilege you're privileged to be in that position and work with people that are arguably better than yourself and help them be the best version of themselves and and then in tune you actually help the organization be successful indeed and as you think about building your leadership teams around you that you work with uh, what traits of leadership are you most interested in observing when you're looking to bring those people into your team? Generally speaking, when I'm recruiting somebody to come into the um, the C-suite, for want of a better word, and sure. in my own teams, is uh, you know they turn up with the required skills, whether it's they're going to be the CTO or they're going to be the chief marketing officer or whatever the role is. Fundamentally, by the time they get to an interview with me, they should have been tested and and check the boxes around technically competent to do the role. So what I'm looking for is I like to understand who they are as a person. So similar to you asking me some of those quick-fire questions, I'm I'm really interested in getting underneath that layer of, you know, um, here's the shop window. I want to go behind the shop window and understand what makes that person tick. And the reason I do that is fit is more important to me um, than skill because you can teach skill but you can't teach fit. And, you know, I think what makes a team successful um, and an organisation successful is is the, the culture and the, the fabric that sits, you know, fundamentally underneath everything, which is your culture. And if you've got leaders coming into that culture that don't fit, it's, it's effectively like a, you know, 
unfortunately, and I've, I've made this mistake before, um, you, you bring somebody on, it's like a, you know, horrible analogy, but like a slow cancer that permeates through the organization. And it's really difficult to unwind. Really? And I'm interested how you try to test for that fit in an interview scenario, because I think it's a scenario that everyone appreciates. We want really good fit in our team and we want good culture, but trying to test for that in a you know, interview process can be really challenging. How do you try to approach that? Well, I think often I um, will give a candidate a case study type scenario. So I'll give them a real problem that the that, that we might be grappling with as an organization. And I ask them to demonstrate in, in their own way how they solve that problem. And you get real insight into, first of all, you get great ideas on how to solve the problem, but you get great insight into how do they think, how do they collaborate or not. Um, are they are they more around a um, lone wolf type individual in terms of happy to be in their own space and solve it themselves, or or are they more likely to look across, um, the, you know, the business or their colleagues uh, or their people to look for solutions? And you kind of just get you get a quite a good insight just giving them a bit of a project to unpack for you in that scenario. And then the second part is really asking them about themselves. So um, what makes Ryan tick, you know? What do you do in your spare time, Ryan? Like, And you, you get a really strong sense how they operate outside of work, and that has a lot to do with what they bring to work. Um, but, you know, we, we all know we spend a lot of time at work, and, and you can't unless you're a really good actor. Um, you can't really have two two personalities running. Um, so I, I find that's the best way. And, and, and I think, you know, one of my skill sets that I've really embraced, I guess, and, and it helps being a woman, I suppose, is, is my intuition and gut feel. It never fails me. And when I've gone against it, I've, pay, I've paid for it dearly. <laughs> yeah, tough, uh, tough lesson. And yeah. I think so often we talk about uh, intuition and gut feeling that it's some kind of uh, magic that we don't really understand. My, my sense is that it's actually uh, thousands of experiences across your life that you've built into this experience pack that you inherently know you don't have to consciously think of it. Your subconscious can, can figure it out, but um, there's a whole lot of experience that built into into that Yeah, and relying on it is a, is a powerful thing. And uh, ignoring it, ignoring it can be very painful. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, let's turn to your uh, one I'm really intrigued around. You can't fake it in leadership. Can't fake it till you make it in leadership. Um, what shaped that idea for you? Look, I think that we've all come across um, leaders in our in our lifetime, whether it be at work or in a sporting context or in just life in general. And I think you can tell very quickly when somebody is thought of a better word, faking it. And you look at the most successful leaders that you've come across in, in your life as well, and you go, actually, they are real. They are real people. They make real mistakes. They're not perfect. And I think they are generally the most successful and, um, I guess, called out role models in a leadership context. And I learned very early on in my career, in fact, it was my first CEO role and, and I'm happy to admit it because it was a it was a massive learning curve for me I took over from um, somebody that was honestly and probably arguably to this day one of the smartest people I've ever worked for um, he was actually extraordinary um, and he 
you know, just was incredibly smart. And um, I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to take over from him and, and step into my first CEO role. And I honestly spent six months trying to be him, faking it, desperately trying to be him. And it was exhausting, let alone um, brand damaging for myself. And as soon as it actually took one of my direct reports that used to be a peer, of course, I stepped up into this role, um, who's who's since passed away, sadly. But he said to me one night in the car park, he said, what's wrong with being you, Nadine? What's wrong with being you? Because that's actually what made you really successful to even get into this position. And it really sat with me on my drive home that night. And I thought, my God, he's right. Like, why am I busting my boiler to be somebody that I'm not? And people saw right through it. And from that day, it really just reminded myself that actually... Being authentic to who you are and being the best version of yourself is so much, not not only easier and less exhausting, but it's more believable. And turning up that way, people really appreciate it. So that's why, I mean, that's that term, you fake it till you make it. Yeah, it might be true in some contexts, but it's definitely not true from a leadership one. And within the context when you referred to that uh, individual being incredibly smart, mm-hmm. was that uh, intellectual horsepower? Was it EQ? Um, you know, what oh, was it about? Yeah, definitely intellectual. And and actually, if you talk about superpowers, like I think um, it, the EQ side of it is actually, my, that's my, yeah, probably the strength that I bring to a role. Um, God, that sounds really arrogant, but. You know, that, know. That, that's my strength. And and I think as soon as I learned to embrace that, I mean, the organisation just flew. Um, and it was because he was brilliant, but actually I had a different skill set to bring to the table. And there's the, it's true that analogy that businesses need different leaders at different times. And and that's exactly what played out for me. It wasn't me being authentic, I would say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very. Yeah, you have to you have to put it uh, put it out there, right? But I think uh, that bringing your whole self to the to the table in the way that that you are strong at, uh, you know, it, it does show authenticity. But as you said earlier, it also allows you to lead in a way that's uh, you know, rather than trying to imitate someone else's approach, which can be, uh, as you said, exhausting. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned the element of failure and. Uh, everyone in their in their role has has moments. Uh, would you be able to share an insight with us somewhere where you've gone? You know that bit didn't didn't go quite right. That didn't work, and how you did go about picking yourself up, and how you were maybe vulnerable in in that environment. Oh, definitely. And look, there's um, there's so many times in my career where you could argue that I've made a mistake, and because um, that's what life's about, right? You make lots of mistakes. That's how you learn and grow and develop. Um, but I think it's about understanding how to recover quickly. And, and I think it's probably an incident that comes to mind where it was a significant process, um, for, for a business that I was leading. Um, it was, you know, going to be a game changer to pull it off. We got to the, you know, the last sort of hurdle and I allowed my frustration to, bleed into this presentation I was giving and and I was frustrated on a number of levels and it was still you know delivered a really professional presentation but I could tell that it wasn't my best work 
And I could also tell that I probably just screwed up our last opportunity to get something across the line. And really how I recovered from that was risky. Um, we got one last opportunity um, for the different a different party to present um, this presentation to, and this was our last chance really. And I had been advised by a member of the board to not do something. And I knew that if I went, if I followed his lead, it would be a, a stuff up and we wouldn't, we wouldn't get the deal across the line. So I went against his judgment, learning from my pre presentation I'd done literally the week prior. And I probably delivered uh, one of the best presentations of my career. And I did it in a really authentic way. And I actually got amazing feedback and we got the deal across the line that everybody was, the whole New Zealand market was just shocked. I was shocked, but I think it really reinforced me that a, this whole thing around being authentic to you, who you are and trusting your gut and B, learning from the mistakes that you make, but learning fast and recovering quickly is critical. And, and I mean, if I, if I, I mean, if I could un unpack that in more detail, it'd probably be more meaningful, that example, because it was high stakes, but really, really interesting scenario for any leader, I think that's growing and developing, or even even a leader that's been really experienced and been in leadership a long time. You're a bigger person to admit you've stuffed something up and even bigger to fix what you've stuffed up. And mm -hmm. Indeed. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is self-awareness. And yeah. that's one of the most powerful attributes of a, as a, of a leader is self-awareness. And sometimes it's about going, I got that wrong. How do I, how do I turn this around? Sometimes it's about going, Hey, that area is not my strength. So how do I bring someone to my team that has is stronger or better than me? And when you mentioned, uh, you know, your superpower being the EQ and you know, reading people and those kind of things, you know, for me, there's no, there's no arrogance of calling that out. That's awareness. That's knowing where you are strong. Mm. And that's a, you know, that's a very, very powerful thing when we're, uh, you know, we work with a lot of leaders in our training programs and we say we teach them skills, but they learn awareness. Yeah. Because that's, that's where the power is and what they, what they do. Mm. Yeah. You're right. How do you give that ability or a safe zone for your own, for your leaders that are in your team to, to fail? And I'm always kind of slightly curious around this word failure because I still feel like it has such negative connotation, but the ability to maybe not play so safe, actually get out there and push the boundaries a bit because if you're not pushing the boundaries, probably the organization's not going as far as or fast as it could do. So how do you try to create an environment that's safe for your your teams uh, and leaders of your teams to go ahead and push the boundaries? I spend probably a disproportionate amount of time so on, on the team in the team dynamics because I think that if you don't do that you don't set up an environment where people feel they can push the boundaries and they can fail without fear of persecution whether it's from me or, or their peers so I, I spend a, you know a significant amount of time um, setting up the team for success and that's really about having um, very open conversation with me in the team as opposed to leading the team but me in the team talking about how we get, how do we work with each other and how do we support each other and how do we understand what are the different strengths that everyone brings to the table um, because invariably everyone brings a different strength and there'll be a common thread throughout but there will be different strengths that come to the table and then from there once you've got that fundamental environment right or, or 
and a level of strength, my job is to actually allow set people up so that they have the ability to make those autonomous decisions and feel empowered that, I mean, my motto and, and a lot of my team know this is if, if you make a mistake, that's fine. Just just recover, but don't make the same mistake twice. That's when I get cranky, you know, Um and I don't get cranky very often because, you know, I find that people, you know, they do they do push boundaries and I allow them, I give them enough space to do that. I'm very big on making sure that they come up with the solutions and I'm the sounding board or the coach more often than not around, that sounds like a good idea, have you thought about? Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of aspects to this, I think, to to allow people to be successful. But fundamentally, you've got to be okay as the leader for them to stuff it up. Because ultimately, you're accountable, right? Sure, sure. Goes to the territory. Yeah. Then can I, can I circle back? Because I did have a question that I was uh, interested to ask, and that was when you were providing that example and you talked about not following the advice of one of the one of the board members mm-hmm. and of course as a CEO you're managing a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of relationships how did you go about addressing that did you need to you know circle back or was it the fact that you landed <laughs> landed the deal and got across the line oh, kind of like all oh, that was needed it's probably two parts to that one I landed the deal and and, it, and the success um, spoke for itself and, you know, again, I fundamentally live by a motto and that's work hard in silence and let success be your morning. That's stuck with me for 15 years, that little motto. And I think that worked brilliantly in this scenario. I did circle back and just connect because that person happened to be the chair of the board, which was fun- who's fundamentally my boss. I didn't apologise, but I did call it out that I went against his advice. But he actually, you know, he said, well, it worked. And I said, yeah. It did. It was. It could have been very career limiting, but it did work. Could have been a very different conversation. Absolutely. But I think what it nudged into for me too is again back to this chestnut around being true to who I am. Because one of the things that I did right at front of this presentation is I actually did a mihi, which is very linked to my mum's heritage and being part Maori, and I'd never done that. Before I've never been, um, I've never put myself in that vulnerability zone to do that, and that could have gone so wrong. But the fact that I opened it up that way and I closed it that way, and, and probably not extend the room had no idea what I was saying in City Hall. It was just fundamentally important because it was so important to the business to get this deal across the line. And I thought if I don't link in very clearly about who I am and what we are about as an organisation, which is a fundamentally New Zealand-based business, then how are they going to know this is the right business for them to connect with? And, and yeah, as I said, the rest is history. It just, yeah, it was a, it was a game changer for me in my career around understanding that leadership component. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about Treo is you don't always have to understand the words to understand the meaning and the you know, gravitas of what's being being yeah. talked about. And I'm sure that, that goes across many languages, but uh, certainly we see that in throughout. So it's an amazing yeah. part of the part of the uh, culture. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How do you go about being a leader worth following? Oh, look, it, it's, um, it's tricky. Look, I, I was really fortunate to work with a guy called Michael Henderson, who's a cultural anthropologist. And Michael, if you've been um, lucky enough to, to work with him and know him, he really talked about this leader worth following notion. It really resonated with me big time. 
because actually that's what you're fundamentally fundamentally as a leader you are asking people to follow you you're the you're the one that leads out you know um if i if i use the um you know the american indian analogy on horseback just because i like horses you're the one the chief actually leads out near on a lone horse and then all the the, the rest of the tribe stands behind them and their shields not in front of them their shields on their back and you know if you think about that just to from an analogy perspective, it's really powerful because they're following you as the chief, you as, as, as the leader. And so you've really got to ask yourself, are you worthy of that? I'm worthy of that. And what does worthy look like to you? And I think for me, what that looks like is um, turning up consistently every day. Um, and it's not just about turning up with a positive attitude, it's turning up with really strong intentions to make sure that you, your actions, your words, the whole way you operate is in full alignment to the culture you're trying to create in the organisation. And that's whether you're speaking to the chair of the board right down to, you know, um, the person that cleans the toilet. It doesn't matter. You've got to be consistent. And I think that's about... That's a leader worth following, a leader that doesn't chop and change depending on their audience. Yeah, they might adjust the language they use or the, you know, the way in which they, they speak to people from a, you know, a relativity perspective as in, you know, what's relevant to them in the conversation. But I think there's just too many leaders that are ivory tower leaders. They sit in their ivory tower office and they just don't know their people and therefore they don't know their culture. And, if you, and you know, culture power strategy. So that really is this whole notion of are you a leader worth following? And I talk about that religiously with my executive, you know, are we leaders worth following, guys? Like, really, can we honestly put hand on heart and say that we are? Because it's always changing, right? There's lots of challenges every business has that changes from week to week or from day to day. So you've just got to continually ask yourself that question, I think. In 18 leading AA, you've got a large team, you're geographically dispersed. How do you try to be a visible leader? How do you try to get out of the ivory tower, as you called it, and and be with the people? So I've been in this role coming up a year, and I think I was in the role two weeks. The first thing I did is I didn't spend lots of time with the exec team. I actually spent lots of time out in the road and at the front line with, with my people, because that's fundamentally how you understand who you are as an organization and your cultural fabric so you know spent the day out on the roadside with our roadside heroes um lee trimmer took me out and um and i'm calling lee out because he's just a fantastic guy out the roadside and you know that was one of the best days i've had in the last 11 months because it taught me bucket loads about what a fabulous brand we have because we have fabulous people that really make a difference to New Zealanders. It's those sorts of, for me to connect and front up, I have to, I have to physically connect. And, and that's challenging, right? In co- pre, you know, post-COVID world where we're all on Teams and Zoom and that sort of thing. Um, and you have to adapt your skills, no doubt, but then nothing beats getting out amongst it. So I've been to 52 centres, I've been nationwide, I've met as many of my 1,300 staff as I can and I will keep doing that because, yeah, I mean, we've got 250 people odd here at head office but it's actually out, as you say, we're nationwide, it's actually out in the regions that we make a big difference. 
And did you get your hands dirty roadside knitting? Did you oh, did it. change your battery? Did you push a car? I learned how to tap a starter motor. That was the highlight for me. Had no idea. Well, I can change a tire, no sweat, but tapping a starter motor, that was a highlight. So, yep, we did a tow. I definitely got my hands dirty. I got asked if I was the uh, health and safety supervisor um, to the head, the head mechanic. I was quite chucked, actually. So, yeah, no, it was, it, it was awesome. And, and I think... But at the end of the day, it's communication, right? Whether it's in person, I communicate regularly, you know, whether it's I do little um, really badly little selfie videos and things like that because, yeah, that's how you get to know people. Importantly, they get to know you. And I think the uh, bad selfie videos feels far more authentic than the uh, studio produced, um, you know, beautiful lights, nice background, uh, scripted reading teleprompter, right? So yeah. you feel you feel more authentic as well. Can I ask, was there, you know, had all those interactions you've had with the AA team, was there a insight that stands out for you that someone shared with you during that during that time? There was, you know, either, you know, positive or uh, here's something we need to work on. Plenty of positives, but there were, there were also things that we need to work on but I think probably that the consistent insight that I got right across the country is our people love their jobs they love what they do and that's whether they're on the roadside helping somebody with a flat battery or or you know the keys locked in the car and the supermarket car park through to you know um actually providing really solid financial advice when it comes to insurance products we are a very complex business and the fact that Everyone I spoke to, and I mean, I can honestly say that, was just so passionate and proud about the role that they they have and, and work that they do. And the fact, you know, that I can have people call me directly and be really open with me about perhaps something that needs to be tweaked or isn't working quite well gives me a lot of heart that, you know, we, we will continue to be, you know, successful for the next 120 years because we celebrate 120 years next year and yeah I think that's really important because at the at the end of the day as CEO you're the last rung on the ladder and if you don't understand what's going on in your organization you've got big problems. <laughs> Indeed and Nadine are you planning at being at home for the next 120? Oh god if I could live that long yeah look I plan to be here um for you know a number of years, I hope, as long as I continue to turn up and, and I'm worth following, I'll be here. I love it. Best job I've ever had. Fabulous. And Nadine, you've had a, a strong alignment with insurance through a good part of your career. Was that something that you fell into or was it something you were drawn to? Oh, I completely fell into. So I actually, um, you know, when I was at school, I was really strong in art. Um, when in fact, I, I was going to go to Elam Art School and um, my dad, Vanessa this cotton sock, said to me, there's no way I was going to have make any money being an artist and I need to sort myself out. So, um, and that's pretty harsh, but he, you know, um, I thank dad for the career I ended up falling into because it was very much falling into the career because it's not only been um, a fantastic journey, I've met lifelong friends and people that I would never have met if I wasn't in that industry. Did I see myself staying in that industry for 26 years? No, <laughs> at the time when I fell into it. Say la vie, you know, um, I'm super grateful. And with your superpower of EQ and the focus that you have on leadership and uh, being able to build a culture in an organisation, how confident would you be going to an industry that you've never been in? 
you think you could go and lead a lead an organization as successfully in something that you didn't maybe had less technical knowledge in? You know what? I I think I'd back myself absolutely. Um, and I think the fact I'm here at the AA and trust me, like I know how to change my oil, you know, my oil and water and change a tire when it comes to fundamentally being an automobile association. I don't know much more about cars. Um, and my and my, the world of mobility has been a huge learning curve for me. But I learn fast, and I think it's again back to how you lead. So it doesn't matter what what it is the organisation is selling or promoting, or you know if they're a, a not for profit or, or 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 a commercial entity. I think the leadership fundamentals are the same, and it's interesting coming into the process for this role, that was the biggest single piece of doubt I had in my mind was, can I adapt after being so many years in financial services? Can I actually adapt? Is this going to work? And so far, so good. I know it's early days, but so far, so good. Well done to to, to Granny Fit. All right, let's round this conversation out with a couple of questions. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Probably that the biggest piece of advice would be embrace who you are and stop worrying about what other people think. I think, you know, I wish I had that advice even earlier than 20. And I wish, you know, having three girls myself, I, you know, they're all great kids. But I, I wish that kids realise that sooner, that it's not about what other people think. I think the challenge is you have to go through some of the experience journey to figure that out before, you know, you can, you can share that advice right now, but it just doesn't land until you've had some of the uh, experience journey, right? Yeah. Okay. And if you were going to step away from being Nadine for the day, you could be anyone in the world doing anything, who would you be for a day? I'd probably do some sort of high performance sport, so maybe Olympics. I wouldn't mind being a maybe a, a rower or a rugby player. Mm-hmm. I'd just love to experience sport at that elite le- level. We've had this discussion a fair amount in our family, a lot of a lot of sporting context in our family, and we sort of landed on the the hundred meters at the Olympics would be a pretty cool event because yeah, you know, glo- global audience, massive energy in the stadium. Uh, you're one of the fastest people on the planet, and the pain doesn't last very long at all. Um, so we <laughs> thought that was we thought that was quite a good a good option compared to what you said. Yeah, the likes of the rowers, uh, etc. Go go through. Yeah, we we thought that 100 meters might be quite a good good one. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You're on it. You're on to it. Babe. Hey, Nadine, thank you so much for joining us today. Those uh, insights were, you know, I can tell they're both authentic and hard earned. And uh, we really appreciate you sharing them with our audience today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.